In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Uh, I'm happy to be among you tonight, especially in the beginning of the Advent Fest, the Fest of the Holy Nativity. And during this Fest, when we start the month of Kiyak, one of the common hymns and songs that we chant is the burning bush. And in our mind, the burning bush symbolizes Saint Mary, the mother of God, who carried the divinity in her womb and she was not burned. Uh, but is this the only meaning of the burning bush? Or are there other meanings of the burning bush? Actually, as we will see tonight, there are several meanings of the burning bush. So let us raise our hearts to God asking him to enlighten our mind in order to understand the mystery of the burning bush, which actually the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God. The story of the burning bush is mentioned in Exodus chapter 3. So let's try to read and understand the mystery of the burning bush. If you can turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 3, we'll start from verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Let's stop here. I want to read verse 4 again. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. So, this verse means, if Moses did not turn aside to look, God would not have called him. But when God saw Moses 
decided to turn aside to look, then God called Moses by his name. And this is actually the first lesson. Moses was busy tending the flock of his father-in-law. But in the midst of his busy schedule, he saw this bush burning with fire, and it's not consumed. And this sight, as it's described, it's a great sight. It's worthy to leave the flood of my father-in-law and to look aside to understand how and why this bush is burning with fire without being consumed. And when Moses started to look, God called him Moses, Moses. Every day we are busy. We are busy with our school, we are busy with our work, we are busy with many activities, we are busy with our friends, with our families. We're busy. Everybody is busy. And in the midst of our busyness, we miss the great sight of the incarnation of the Son of God. We miss to look at the burning bush of our life. That's why God wants to communicate with us. God wants to call us by our name. God wants actually to spend time with us. But we don't have this time. For those who decide to leave the flood of Jethro, to leave the everyday busy life, and to have quiet time with God, to dedicate some time with God. For those, God will call them by their name, and God will start communicating with us. So the first lesson we learn from this story, in order to enjoy the company of God, in order to understand the mystery of God, you need to turn aside. You need to spend quality time with God. Don't be distracted while you are spending time with God. Many times when we come to the church, we don't know, even while in the church, physically with our bodies, but we did not turn aside to create the great sight. The great sight is the mystery of incarnation. We have the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ on the altar. But we are standing in the church, looking at our phones, checking our messages, chatting, sending text messages, checking our social media. Then we leave the liturgy and we say, we did not benefit anything. Absolutely, you will not benefit anything. Because you are distracted. You did not learn the mystery of Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. You did not learn how to sit at the feet of the Lord, to turn aside, to leave completely the distraction of the flock of Jethro in order to focus on the great sight of the incarnation of the Son of God. Every liturgy, we have this great sight. 
Every morning and every night and in the noon and the evening, we have time to turn aside. But are you willing to turn aside or not? I want you to notice also in verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And the angel is capital. So the angel here, this was one of the apparitions of the Son of God in the Old Testament. Angel means uh, not from the rank of the angels, but angel means a carrying of a message. So the Son here, the Son of God, he had a message to deliver to Moses. But until this moment, Moses did not realize that he is speaking to God. That's why, as we'll see later, God told him, I am the God. So many times we don't realize that God is in our midst. The church reminds us, Emmanuel, our God, is in our midst now. But because we are distracted with the flock of Jethro, we are distracted with the business of our life, we are blind. We don't see the Son of God in our midst. Let's continue reading from verse 5. And he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father. So, turning aside is not enough for God to reveal himself to Moses and to tell him, I am the God of your father. Another requirement to take off his sandals. The Lord told him, take off your sandals. The ground that you are standing upon is a holy ground. What does this mean? And why the church until now asking us to take off our shoes when we take communion or when we enter into the altar or when you visit some monasteries you will find yourself taking off your shoes even outside the church. What is the meaning of taking off the shoes here? When we walk our shoes actually gets dirty. So taking off the shoes symbolizes taking off the dirt that cling to our feet while walking in the journey of life. But the spiritual meaning means when we walk in the journey of our life, we actually, many, many sins and many dirt, spiritual dirt, cling to our spiritual feet. And we cannot stand before God on the holy ground with all this dirt, with all these sins clinging to us. We need to repent. We need to wash our feet. We need to stand in purity and repentance. Otherwise, God 
will not reveal himself to us. So, the second requirement in order for God to tell us, I am the God of your fathers, to reveal himself and reveal his ministry, is to approach him with a repentant heart. Every time you bow down to take off your shoes, the idea here is not about the physical shoes that you are taking off. The idea here, every time when you take off literally your shoes, you need to ask yourself, did I repent? Did I return to God wholeheartedly? Did I take off the dirt, the spiritual dirt from my life before uh, when I'm standing before God? Do I have peace with my brother? Am I, did I reconcile with him? Did I forgive him? What about the purity of my heart? Is there any sin clinging to my heart that make me uh, blind to see the glory of God? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the purity of heart is a requirement to be able to see God. On the covenant Thursday, the Lord was eating the Passover with the disciples. And then after he he ate the Passover, he decided actually to wash their feet. And if this, the ritualistic washing of the feet, this should have been done in the beginning of the visit, not after eating the Passover. But as we read, after supper, the Lord started actually to wash their feet. And when Peter, out of his humbleness, he said to God, you will not wash my feet. God actually replied very seriously and he told him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no portion with me. And when Peter told him, no, then wash my hand on my head and my feet, God told him, no. He who is bathed doesn't need except to wash his feet only. So what does this mean? And why God insisting, insisted to wash their feet before, before what? Giving them his body and his blood before communion. It's the same meaning. Washing the feet here is the same meaning of taking off the shoes. It is the meaning of repentance. It is the meaning of approaching the table of the Lord with repentant heart. That's why he said to Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no portion with me. I'm sure you heard some fathers telling you, if you don't repent and confess, you cannot take communion. These are the exact same words of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I don't wash your feet, if you don't repent and confess, you have no portion with me. You cannot take communion. And when Peter told him, then wash my hand, my head, and my feet, he told him, no, he who is bathed 
Bathing here means baptized. After baptism, you don't, want, you don't need to be baptized every time you sin. But it is enough only to wash your feet. It's enough only to repent and confess your sins. Maybe some of you will say, you know, yes, we understand about uh, repentance. Washing the feet means repentance. But why you are saying confession? Let me tell you. After he washed the feet of the disciple, he told them, as I washed your feet, go and wash the feet of others. So, let's translate it. As I forgive your sins, go and forgive the sins of others. He said this to the disciples. And after his resurrection, he breathed into the face of his holy disciples and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of others, they are forgiven. And if you retain their sins, they are retained. So washing the feet doesn't mean only the repentance, but means also the confession, because the Lord instructed the disciples to go and wash the feet of others. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of confession. And that's why on the feast of the apostles, we do the liturgy of the waters in which Abuna washed the feet. Besides the covenant service day, we do the liturgy of the water. There's a third time we do it in Epiphany, but this is to symbolize the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why if you remember, in baptism, Abuna, uh, in Epiphany, Abuna does not wash your feet. Abuna anoint you on your forehead. But in Covenant Thursday and in the Apostles' Feast, Abuna wash your feet. Because in these two occasions, we remember the sacrament of repentance and confession, washing the feet. But in Epiphany, we remember the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he anoints you in your forehead. And this is the only time if there is a bishop praying the uh, liturgy of the water in the Feast of Epiphany, the priest can anoint the bishop in his forehead. That's the only time. Why? As John the Baptist, baptizes the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the only time in which a priest can anoint a bishop uh, in his forehead. So there are two requirements. The first requirement to leave the distractions of the world, to leave the busyness of the world, and to come to God, giving time, being focused, concentrated, that's the importance of having quiet time, or when we come to the liturgy, or when we come to spiritual meeting like now, we are not distracted with anything with the flock of Jethro. Then God will call us by our name, meaning he will reveal himself to us. Second requirement is to approach God with a repentant heart. Every time we pray the Agbeya, we start by, after Thanksgiving prayer, with Psalm 50, the Psalm of Repentance. We approach with a repentant heart. Then, verse 6, 
Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. After Moses did these two things, he turned aside and he took off the sandal. God told him, I am the God. He revealed himself. But here is a question to you. Isn't it enough to say, I am God? He doesn't have to say, I am the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. It was enough to say, I am God. That's enough. Why he said, I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob? There are many reasons, actually. I will keep the most important reason to the end. But let me give you some reasons why God said, I am God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses just, he was in, in Egypt. And Egypt at that time, they worshipped so many so-called gods with a small g, idols. So when God appeared to Moses, lest Moses get contaminated with all these false gods, so God told him, I am the God who is worshipped by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm God of your fathers. You have been here in Egypt for 400 years. And maybe you are influenced with the Egyptians and how they are worshiping false gods, idols. But as we say in the psalm, all the gods of the Gentiles are demons. I am the true God. I am the God who was worshipped by your fathers and grandfathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's number one. Another reason, God actually uh, when he says, I'm God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, means that God is proud of his children. Like, there is no president or king or emperor say, I am king of so-and-so. I am the president of so-and-so. It's enough to say, I am the president of America. I am the prime minister of Australia. That's enough. But he doesn't say, I am the prime minister of those, these people. You know. But God is proud to be our father. In spite of our weakness, in spite of our sinfulness. But God usually he wants to relate himself to us. He gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. And then he called the law, the law of Moses. Although he is the one who gave him the law. But instead of saying the law of God, he said the law of Moses. He instructed and explained uh, to Solomon how to build the temple. 
And then he called the temple the temple of Solomon. That's why until today, all these churches are churches of God. We come here to worship God. We are here not to worship St. Mary or to worship Archangel Michael or to worship St. Mina. No, we are here to worship God. But God, in his humbleness, he wants to honor us. That's why he instructed us to call this church of St. Mina, St. Mark, St. Mary, Archangel Michael. And God is happy when we honor and we venerate his children. And he said, he who honors you, honors me. So I want you to see the love of God and the humbleness of God. How God in his humbleness, he called himself God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. But the most important reason why God said, I am God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. If you made a deal with somebody, if you made a covenant with somebody, for example, if you promise somebody to give him this lump sum of money, and for so many reasons, for so many years, sorry, you did not give this person the promised money. Then actually, if you decided to step back and not to pay him the money, you will never say, I am the friend of so-and-so. Because when you say, I'm the friend of so-and-so, this means your commitment to pay him. Right? If you go to chapter 2 from Exodus, the verse of uh, verse 23, 24, and 25. We read, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Yes, God made a covenant with Abraham, and with Isaac, and with Jacob. When God encouraged uh, Jacob to go to Joseph in Egypt, God told him, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. Go, and actually your children and your offspring will stay in Egypt for 400 years. And then I will deliver them from the land of Egypt, the land of slavery, into a land that have honey and milk, the promised land. So there was a covenant between God and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the people under the slavery, under the bondage in the land of Egypt, they grumbled, and I'm sure many people said, where is God? Where is his promises? Like when we go through difficult time, what is the first word we say? 
where is God? Why God has forsaken us? Why God doesn't look after us? So here actually, God remembered his covenant. Remembered means he forgot and now he remembered. No. Remembered here, now it is the time to fulfill the covenant. The promise that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. So when God appeared to Moses to tell him, I am the God of your fathers, means he told them, you know what? My covenant, my promise to your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, now actually I'm here to fulfill the covenant. Now I am here to prom- to deliver them up. Can you imagine if there is like CEO of your company or the president of your university promised you something. And then in your mind, he forgot this promise. And you are waiting, waiting, waiting for the fulfillment of the promise and he never fulfilled. Then he decided actually to go to his office to ask about the promise. And once you enter his office, he will tell you, I remember my promise to you. This will give you peace. This, yes, thank God that he still remember the promise that he made to me. That's why God, when he appeared to Moses, the first thing he said, he said to him, I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Means I am here to fulfill my promise. Moses is standing in awe in front of God. And he realizes that he is speaking to God himself. What happened? Moses actually hit his face. Or he bowed down before God. Um, That's why when we stand in prayer, we prostrate ourselves. And we say, come, let us kneel down. Let us ask Christ our God. That's why when we approach God, we need to approach Him with this spirit like Moses. Hiding our face, prostrating down. Do you remember the tax collector when he entered the temple? He could not actually lift his uh, head and his eyes to heaven. But he bowed down and he beating his chest, said, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. We need actually to learn when we stand in the presence of God, how to stand in humbleness, in reverence to God, bowing down. Many times the deacon during the divine liturgy says, bow your heads to the Lord, to stand in reverence, in respect, in awe to God before whom we are standing. All this was introduction to the mystery of the burning bush. Until now, we did not speak about the mystery of the burning bush. Then God started to reveal to Moses from verse 7 the mystery of the burning bush. And when we read from verse 7 the mystery of the burning bush, I want you to count how many verbs. You will find there are six verbs. 
six verbs. And these six verbs actually explain to us the mystery of the burning bush. Let's read verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen, that's the first verb, seen, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard, number two, their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrow, that is the third verb. So I have come down, that's the fourth verb, come down, to deliver them out, that's the fifth verb, of the land of the Egyptians, and to bring them up, that's the sixth verb, from the land to a good and a large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Number six symbolizes, has many symbols, but one of the symbols, to fulfill a task on earth. For example, God created the world in how many days? In six days. God fulfilled the salvation on the sixth day and at the sixth hour. We say, O you who on the sixth day and in the sixth hour. So here God actually has come to fulfill a task completely on earth. And he said, I have seen, I have heard, I know. That's why I have come to deliver them and bring them up to a land flowing with milk and honey. And when you see all these actions, it is a complete task. If you hear about uh, somebody who is sick, who was, for example, diagnosed with cancer, maybe you can say, I have seen his suffering. I have heard his cry. But I'm not sure if you can say, I know his suffering. Nobody can know the suffering of others. And maybe you are going to say, I have come down or I am going to visit him. But who can say I can deliver him? So our actions usually are not complete. Nobody can make the six actions that the Lord mentioned here. If you hear about Christians that are persecuted or are killed or are martyred, like the time when ISIS was persecuting the Christian. But right now we hear in some tribes of Ethiopia, right now actually, they were killed and they are tortured in Ethiopia right now. Maybe you can say, I have seen, I have heard. But who among us can say, I have known? And even if you go going to go and visit them, just maybe you can give them some support, some aid. But can you say, I will deliver them? And even if we are able to deliver them, this would be the best, just to deliver them. But God was not happy 
or he did not decide just to deliver them from the Egyptians. But after delivering them, there is another step to bring them up to a land. If you are walking in the street and you saw somebody bullying a little child, if you deliver this child from the hand of the person who is bullying, this great, and will stop here. But God did not stop here. God, after delivering us from the operation of the taskmasters, he decided to, to bring us up to the promised land. And why God said land flowing with milk and honey? Why milk and honey? Milk, we get it from animals. And honey, we get it from the bees, from the plant. Which means actually abundance in both the plants and in the animals. Which means God flowing with milk and honey. There will be treasures of animals and treasures of plants and beehives. So God said to Moses, I came actually to fulfill my promise. I have seen, I have heard, I know, I will come down to deliver them and bring them up to the promised land. So how these six actions related to the burning bush? The first meaning of the burning bush will speak about so different meaning. The first meaning of the burning bush is the historical meaning. The burning bush symbolizes the children of Israel. And the fire symbolizes the oppression by the Egyptians. But in spite of the oppression, in spite of the fire, the bush was not consumed. The children of Israel are not consumed. Why? Because God in the midst. So here is the message that God is saying to Moses. You see this little bush in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the oppression of the Egyptians? You are this little bush, Israel, in the midst of the Egyptians. But don't worry, as much as they were oppressed, as much as they flourished and they grew, as we read actually in, uh, in chapter 2, we read, as much as they were oppressed by the Egyptians, as much as they flourished and they grew, God blessed them. The oppression did not consume them. The oppression of the Egyptians did not consume the Israelites. That's why God appeared in this very unique site, the site of the burning bush. So that is the historical meaning. Why actually the church is chanting the burning bush during the nativity fast? What is the relation between the burning bush and the nativity, 
the advent of Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. The bush symbolizes the people of God, us. And the fire symbolizes the oppression by Satan after the fall of Adam and Eve. After the fall of Adam and Eve, we were delivered to Satan. We delivered ourselves to Satan, to live in the kingdom of Satan. And Satan actually is start to torture us from the time of Adam until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tortured us on earth and after they died, they went to Hades. Everybody went to Hades. So God, people were crying for 5,000 years. They were crying to God. So God, he said, I have seen the oppression of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. I know their pain. So I will come down. That's the incarnation. Verse 8, so I have come down. That's the incarnation. God came down from heaven to our earth to save us, to deliver us from the oppression of Satan. And not only to deliver us, but to bring us up. He descended to Hades, and then he took Adam and all his children from Hades, and he delivered them to the paradise. He opened the paradise of joy. So, this is the prophetic meaning of the burning bush. The bush symbolizes all of us. Then the fire symbolizes the oppression by Satan. But this fire did not consume us. The persecution of the church will never consume us. When we are persecuted by our enemies, and they killed many Christians. This would make Christianity flourish and grow more and more. They killed the 21 martyrs of Libya. The cops were uh, martyred in Libya. But until now, actually, their blood is bringing more people to Christ. So they were killed, but their blood still speak like the blood of Abel. Until now, their blood is speaking and preaching as we, we read the blood of martyrs is the seed of faith. As much as, as they oppressed us, but we are growing and flourishing. When the Ecclesian persecuted Christianity, Christians spread all over the world. When he killed thousands of thousands of Christians, Christianity was not consumed. Do you know when Christianity started to get weaker? When we divided from inside. After the heresies and the council of Chalcedon, when we became two groups and we excommunicated each other, that's when Christianity became weaker and weaker. The external persecution never actually consumed the church. But the internal division is what actually makes us weaker. So that is the prophetic meaning. So now understood 
the historical meaning of the burning bush and also the prophetic meaning of the burning bush. Number three, the symbolic meaning of the burning bush. Uh, I am sure all of you know this symbolic meaning. The burning bush, the bush symbolizes Saint Mary, the mother of God. And the fire is the fire of divinity. And who actually dwelt in the womb of Saint Mary? Not a human being like Mysterious, but God himself, the Son of God, with his divinity. He dwelt in the womb of Saint Mary to took flesh from her. As Archangel Gabriel told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one who is born from you is the Holy One. So this is a symbolic meaning. The bush symbolizes the Mary, the fire, the fire of the divinity, but this fire did not consume Saint Mary. Although in Hebrew we read, our God is a consuming fire, but this fire did not consume Saint Mary, the mother of God. That's actually the symbolic meaning of the burning bush. But there's another meaning, the Christological meaning of the burning bush. The Christological meaning. We, we say in the confession, every liturgy, that we believe he made it one, he made the divinity one with his humanity, without mingling, without confusion, and without alteration. So when we see the bush burning with fire, there is union here between the fire and the bush without the fire consuming the bush. So, the Christological meaning, we can see in this burning bush, the mystical union between the divinity and the humanity uh, in the person of the God-man God Jesus Christ. How is divinity united with his humanity? There are two heresies that were rejected by the Church. The history of Nestorius and the history is a heresy of Eutychus. Nestorius spoke about two separate natures. So, divinity and humanity existed together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but not united. Eutychus said that the humanity was consumed by the divinity. But the church said no. As St. Cyril of Alexandria said, mea thesis to aeu to theosarchomini means one nature for the incarnated Son of God. So the divinity is united with a humanity in a very unique way, mystical way. We cannot describe it. Have. Nobody can describe how this union. Can you describe how the burning bush is burning with fire and the, 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 the bush and the fire are together 
in union, but without the fire consuming the bush? If you can explain to me this, I will explain to you the mystery of the union between the divinity and the humanity. When we cannot describe something, we describe it in, in the negative. Negative doesn't mean something bad, something negative. But if I cannot describe something, I will say, this is not like this, and this is not like this, and this is not like this. That's why we, when we come to describe the unity between, or the union between humanity and divinity, we say this union is not like this, and not like this, and not like this. The union in our mind can be between solid material or can be between liquids or can be, be between chemicals. When actually we put solid material together, we call it mixing. So, for example, if you put sugar and salt together, we're mixing them. When actually you put liquid together, uh, like are confusing these two uh, liquid together. In Arabic, we call it mazik, binimzikhum ma'abad. When actually you put two chemicals together, there is alteration. Alteration, uh, for example, if you put hydrogen and oxygen, you will get water, H2O. So here, there is alteration. You know, oxygen and hydrogen uh, are capable actually to uh, be flame. But water actually is put off fire. So there is alteration even in the nature of the substance. So we say the union between divinity and humanity is not like the solid material without mingling, not like the liquid without confusion, and not like the chemical without alteration. Now do you understand why we say without, without mingling, without confusion, without alteration? to say it is not like the union between solid material or liquid or chemicals. Then, can you describe this union? No. It is beyond. That's why we call it mystical theology. I cannot describe it. I can tell you it's not like this, it's not like this, it's not like this. But nobody can describe how the bush is burning with fire. So this is the Christological meaning. So we spoke about historical meaning, spoke about prophetic meaning, spoke about symbolic meaning, we spoke about Christological meaning. Number five, the fifth meaning is the spiritual meaning. The spiritual meaning. The burning bush symbolizes all of us. And the fire symbolizes God. Our God is fire, consuming fire. But he is united with us not to consume us. 
but to sanctify us, to dwell in us. In baptism, actually, we prepare the person to be a holy temple of God through the cleansing and the washing in baptism. Then in chrismation, we receive the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. That's why St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, Don't you know that you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit is abiding in you? The Holy Spirit is abiding in us. You are the temple of God. We became like the burning bush. God is inside me. God is dwelling in me. The Lord Jesus Christ said, If anybody hears my voice and keep my commandment, me and my Father will come and dwell in him. So now we are a dwelling place for the Holy Trinity. But God dwells in us not to consume us and not to uh, destroy us, rather to cleanse, rather to sanctify us. That's why St. Paul, when he spoke about the sin, sin of sexual immorality, said, should I take the members of Christ and make them members of harlots? You need to understand who you are. The burning bush is you and I. Because although we are human beings, but God now is dwelling inside us. So this mystery that you see it in St. Mary, the Mother of God, we see it in just a spiritual way in each one of us because we became a dwelling place for the Holy Trinity. You are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit uh, dwells in you. The last meaning, which is the sixth meaning of the, of the burning, which I spoke about historical meaning, prophetic meaning, symbolic meaning, Christological meaning, spiritual meaning. The last meaning, actually, is the eschatological meaning. Eschatology is about the life after this. Fire symbolizes the love of God. As you read in uh, Song of Solomon, Chapter 8, verse 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy as cruel as the grave. It's flames, it's for love. The flames of love are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters 
cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. The ultimate revelation of the burning bush, God who appeared to Moses, I am God of your fathers, is the revelation of the love of God. This love actually is like the, the fire. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame, many waters, even the floods of the world cannot drown it, cannot quench love. St. Paul, inspired by this, he said, who can stop God from loving me? In Romans chapter 8, he mentioned two things. Mentioned, who can separate me from the love of God? So this is about me. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. As we read in verse 35, Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In this verse, he, he meant, who can stop me from loving Christ? Nothing neither tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Nothing will stop me from loving God. But what about God? Many times Satan put in my mind, God does not love me. That's why in verse 38, he spoke about the opposite. Also, nothing will stop God from loving me. I am persuaded, verse 38, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is, which is manifested, which we have seen in the incarnation of Christ Jesus our Lord. So the burning bush is about the love of God. This love the love in my heart toward God who can separate me from God and the love of God toward me. Of course, there is no comparison. No comparison between my love toward God and his love toward me. That's why when he spoke about the love of God toward me, he said, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principles, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, nothing. But when he spoke about us, he said, neither tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness. But the beauty here, nothing will separate me from God and nothing will stop God from loving me. That's why this bride in Solomon, in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, she told him, put me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. When I have my seal on this notebook, me this mine, nothing will take this from me. So when she told him, set me as a seal upon your heart, 
means unite me with you. Make me one with you forever, eternally. That's why I told you this is the eschatological meaning of the burning bush. Nothing will separate me from the love of God. I will be with God eternally. Many uh, theologians disagree about theosis and deification and what St. Peter meant by when he said will be partakers uh, in the divine nature. I'm not going to discuss all this theology. But the fact that there is this agreement about what theosis means, what deification means, what St. Peter meant when we are partakers in the divine nature of God. This means it's a mystery, like the mystery of the burning bush. Who can explain to us how the bush is united with the fire? What does this mean? Does the bush become fire? Definitely not. But it's united with the fire. So, that is actually the burning bush is the mystery of theosis, is the mystery of the deification that we don't understand. That's why we disagree. That's why there are many theological discussions. What do you mean by this? But this is the mystery of the burning bush. This is the eschatological meaning of the burning bush. It's the, the, the mystery of love. Nobody can understand the meaning, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. The flames of love, like flames of fire. No water, many water can quench it. Neither many floods cannot drown. The love of God will continue forever, eternally. In First Corinthians chapter 13, he said, the great three virtues is faith, love, and hope. But love is the greatest because faith will end. When we go to heaven, everything will be seen. So there is no place for faith. Hope will end. When we go to heaven, what we hoped for, we receive. So it will end. But what we will continue in the eternal life is love. That's the mystery of the burning bush, the revelation of the love of God, the manifestation of the love of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. So whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So the burning bush is more than just St. Mary who carrying the fire of divinity. As we saw in the burning bush, there is historical meaning, there is prophetic meaning, there is symbolic meaning, there is Christological meaning, there is spiritual meaning, Christ dwelling in me to purge me from my sin, to cleanse me from my sin. Fire purge, purge and eats actually the uh, grass, the deadly plants, but not the bush. And there is catalogical meaning of the, uh, of the burning bush. So while we are fasting, this fast of nativity. Let us reflect on all this meaning. Let us put aside
the flock of Jethro. Let us take off our sandals. Let's approach to the burning bush to enjoy the mystery of the burning bush. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.